Sarah Chilton, nice to meet everyone. We thought we would first of all start by just summarising what most of you will be quite familiar with, which is the current position on sick pay. There have been a number of changes over the last couple of weeks which may be less familiar to people, so we thought it would be a helpful place to start. Um, and then we'll move on to talk about um, other issues which employers might be experiencing at the moment, including uh, potential redundancies and reducing contractual hours, and then we'll talk about the new government proposals at the end of this session. Um, so in terms of sick pay, um, just to recap where we are at now. So the position is that the rate, rate of sick pay is unchanged. It's £94.25 a week. And someone qualifies for that when they earn more than £118 per week. So I don't know if anyone in this chat has got any zero hours workers or people whose hours fluctuate. But someone gets sick pay on a day that they are usually contracted to work. So that does mean that often people in zero hours situations drop out of the sick pay regime. So if that applies to anyone, you're probably used to how that goes uh, in terms of your payroll system. Um, but obviously happy to chat about any of that. Um, those rates are going up as they normally do um, at the beginning of April. So just watch out for that. They're not going up very much. Uh, the rate goes up to £95.85 and the lower earnings limit goes up to £120 a week. The government have also announced that the sick pay will come available from day one. So it normally used to be, as you all know, available from day four of absence. So there were three waiting days. That is changing. And the legislation to deal with that is being put before Parliament today. So we expect that to become law today or tomorrow at the latest. In terms of some changes to sick pay, other than the removal of the three-day waiting period, there was a lot of debate a couple of weeks ago amongst a lot of employment lawyers and businesses around what happened if someone was following the government guidelines to self-isolate. And at that stage, it was really around people who had come back from abroad and were being told that they had to stay for 14 days inside and therefore they couldn't go to work. And it was unclear whether or not those people were entitled to sick pay. And under the pre-existing sick pay rules, it appeared that those people were entitled to sick pay if they had some sort of notice, um, and it was called written notice, from the government, uh, Public Health England or the NHS, telling them to stay at home. That caused quite a lot of confusion and difficulty for a lot of employers and employees because a lot of people didn't have that notice and yet were following the guidelines and being sensible. And it was identified by the government um, and by a lot of trade organisations as well that if we didn't sort this situation out, what would happen is that we'd get a lot of people who had potentially the virus, but without any symptoms, attending work and exposing their colleagues to risk and then exposing those colleagues, families and uh, elderly relatives to risk. So what the government have done to address that is change the law so that there was an amendment to the sick pay rules, which was put out last week and it essentially changes it so that if someone is isolating himself from other people in such a manner as to prevent infection or contamination with the coronavirus disease in accordance with guidance published by Public Health England, National Health Service or Public Health Wales and effective from the 12th of March and by reason of that isolation is unable to work, which we'll come back to, then they're entitled to sick pay. Now, the, one of the key things to think about there is they get sick pay if by reason of that isolation they're unable to work. So I think we would take the view that if in fact they can work despite that isolation, i.e. they can work from home, then they would not be entitled to treat themselves as sick on sick pay. And in fact, they should be working and they should be doing that as usual and they would be entitled to their full pay as usual. 
But if, for example, you have a business where people need to come into work to do their job, they obviously can't come into work if they're isolating under that guidance and therefore they would be entitled to sick pay. And the other key change that we saw was that um, there is specific provision in the new sick pay regulations, which is going to mean that someone who is caring for someone who has symptoms of coronavirus, so not caring for someone who is self-isolating as a precaution, but caring for someone who actually has symptoms of the virus is entitled to sick pay. Now, I mean, that's sort of a neither here nor there point, because if someone is following government guidelines, if they are living with and caring for someone with coronavirus symptoms, they themselves should be self-isolating for 14 days anyway. So they would be caught by the regulation that I just summarised a moment ago. But it is just another point to look out for. And the final thing that I'm going to just talk about before I hand over to Beth on sick pay relates to the new reimbursement that we've seen, which will be good news for a lot of us in SMEs. So if you have less than 250 employees in the business, you will be able to claim back the cost of the statutory sick pay element. So that's the £94.25 for up to 14 days for any employee. And that should cover any 14 day period of isolation. Um, so we've just covered off statutory sick pay, but obviously um, a lot of you may have different contractual arrangements and just be sure that albeit you have to comply with the government rules on statutory sick pay and you have to do what we've just outlined, what you may also have to do is comply with any of your contractual duties on contractual sick pay. So just check your contract and make sure your contractual sick pay provisions may also have different rules about certification and have a look at them. But also what we would say is, be sensible and reasonable about imposing any strict rules about, for example, what you may or may not need. The government have put out guidance, which is not mandatory, but very much encourages people not to require any sort of fit note or sick note for anyone who is sick during this period of time. There are some more complicated issues around people who might be choosing to self-isolate, which Beth is going to come on to discuss. Before we do that, though, does anyone have any questions they want to ask us about what I've just spoken about? No. Well, if we can come back at the end to bite it anyway. Um, Beth, over to you. Thanks, Sarah. So there are a few categories, as Sarah highlighted, of people who might choose to self-isolate in certain circumstances. I think the, the first category to think about is people who choose to self-isolate, not because they have an underlying condition, not because they uh, have been exposed to the virus, not because they are being instructed under Public Health England guidance to self-isolate, but because they are concerned and don't want to come into the office or don't or feel that they need to take certain precautions for themselves. And I think those people aren't covered by the statutory sick pay legislation. They wouldn't be entitled to statutory sick pay. And strictly speaking, they wouldn't be entitled to contractual sick pay either. What they're essentially taking is a sort of a leave of absence, which can in some circumstances be unpaid. Although I think employers ought to be thinking quite carefully about how they treat those people and the reasons why those people are taking, wanting to take those precautions and deal with it on a sort of case-by-case -case basis. The more complicated issue is around people who are being told to self-isolate because of an underlying medical condition. And, and that's guidance which has come out in the last week or so from the government around uh, people who are pregnant, people who have underlying health conditions, which mean that they have to self-isolate or they, they ought to be taking extra precautions and not coming to work. Now, some of those people will come under the category that Sarah has highlighted of people who can work from home if, if they're able to do that, as we can, for example, in the way that we work. Um, but some of those people won't <clears throat> come into that category, can't work from home. So we'll be well um, and able to work in theory, but there will be, but will be prevented from coming into work by, by government guidelines. 
Now, I think once the government say they're writing to people who fall into that category today, and once they have a letter saying you must not come into work, then I think what the government will do is bring them under the statutory sick that they can then be entitled to statutory sick pay. But there are a couple of points where the position isn't entirely clear. And one of the things I've been thinking about is if someone is pregnant and told that they ought to be self-isolating, um, is there an argument that in fact what that is, is a health and safety suspension? So if you are pregnant under ordinary circumstances, your employer has to do a risk assessment to determine whether the workplace is safe for you in those circumstances. And if it is not safe for you, you offer your alternative work or they can send you home, that is on full pay and it's what's called a health and safety suspension. And there are other circumstances in which employers can make health and safety suspensions. So I think where the position is not yet clear whether those people will be a health and safety suspension or whether they will be entitled to statutory sick pay. So I think it's just worth thinking about each case quite carefully um, to determine whether how, how their pay will be um, established and how they can be best remunerated and best uh, comforted that they don't, you know, that they can take that time without putting themselves and their families at risk. The other thing to think about in relation to some of those people, so is, is that those with underlying conditions might also have a disability for the purposes of the Equality Act. So they might, although they, it might be a disability which ordinarily doesn't have an impact on their, what they do at work because it's medicated or because they have a condition which, which doesn't sort of every day impact what they do, but they might still be defined as having a disability under the, under the Equality Act. In those circumstances, an employer does have an obligation to make reasonable adjustments to remove any sort of disadvantage that that disabled person might suffer. And so I think there is an argument in these circumstances that an employer has an obligation to modify arrangements for those people. So to allow them to work from home, for example, where they might not allow, where if, you know, if there was a choice and not everybody can work from home, but some people can, then you ought to be um, reasonable adjustments and treating that as a reasonable adjustment for those people who have an underlying condition which could amount to a disability. Has anyone got any questions on those issues before I move on to redundancy and other cost-saving measures. No? So, um, so obviously in these circumstances, uh, there are going to be businesses having to make some difficult decisions around cost-cutting measures and what they can and can't do. There are a couple of things just to think about on that. Uh, the first is uh, redundancies and what you have to do if, if you are making people redundant. And we'll come on at the end to the government's job retention scheme, which might make for some people, redundancies are uh, less likely, but it's worth just thinking about the process. And I think the first thing to say is that the current situation, it doesn't remove the need to, to follow any process for redundancy. The fact that there is a obviously a really serious situation doesn't mean that um, people wouldn't be able to claim, for example, unfair dismissal. And it also doesn't totally remove the need for collective consultation in a, in a redundancy situation where you're making 20 or more people redundant. It's likely, I think, that the, the special circumstances defence to not following a collective consultation process would apply. But that doesn't, even the special circumstances defence, and I can give a bit more detail on what that is, but essentially, if you're making 20 or more people redundant in one establishment, you have to follow certain consultation obligations and that involves electing representatives and negotiating with those representatives or consulting with those representatives and it imposes time limits on how quickly you can make redundancies. 
there, there is this thing called the special circumstances defense which allows you to uh, relax those obligations in some circumstances but what it doesn't do even in a special circumstances situation it doesn't remove them altogether so you should be thinking about process and thinking about consultation whether they're individual redundancies or collective redundancies and not just walking people out the door without following any kind of process with them and then Sarah you're going to talk a little bit about the layoff and short-term working provision and before I do that actually I just thought um might be helpful to pick up on something which um is something we've been asked about quite a lot which is around closure of schools so a lot of people have been asking us what to do uh, in the circumstances where a school is closed and a person is therefore having to work from home because they have no childcare, um, and that's quite common I think at the moment and I think the legal position is that that person is not sick so that person is not entitled to sick pay in the same way that the other categories of people that we spoke about earlier so technically under the law that person is entitled to either parental leave or they're entitled to time off to care for dependents um, neither of those is um, applicable to workers or self-employed people so we're just talking about employees in that context and neither of those types of leave is paid so that is the person's entitlement um, whether or not uh, you as an employer have got the ability to let that person work from home or let that person do different more flexible hours will be subject to the type of work that you do and we generally try and say to employers at the moment that if you can be flexible and arranging things like split shifts to enable two people say at home to do childcare, then that will be a helpful thing to do, uh, particularly if you have the work for those people to do. And um, obviously we'll come on to talk about reducing contractual hours and varying contractual hours because it ties into that. The other question that we have been asked is around, well, some people are saying, I can't work at home because I have children, but my colleagues who don't have children can work at home home as in, you know I, I can't physically work at home because I'm looking after my kids um, and you know is there a discrimination issue there and we've given this some thought and I think normally what you have is potential discrimination when you're talking about the main caregiver to children being typically based on statistics a woman um, and so sometimes when you're talking about treating the main caregiver or the person who requires some flexibility for looking after children um, less favorably than other people in the workplace you might be in the area of indirect discrimination on the grounds of sex but I think um, it's a difficult situation where we find ourselves now because there is going to be no statistic that will tell you that more women right now are required to work at home than men the differentiating factor as to whether someone's working at home right now is either the fact of having children or whether or not their job can be done at home it isn't whether or not they're male or female and more likely to take on a greater share of the child caring burden so i think where we get to although this is clearly all very untested territory but where we get to is that there probably isn't a discrimination issue um, in this particular topic. But what we would just say is, if you are getting questions around this, think about that. Just think about whether or not what you're doing and any policies that you're putting in place could adversely have a disproportionate impact on, say, women or disabled workers in your workforce. Um, and I just, but the culture is quite a difficult one. Yes, Beth, please. So briefly, just on the, the, to apply that thought as well, when you're, if you're making any redundancy selection criteria, um, that you shouldn't be, uh, and this sort of seems obvious, but always bears repeating, the reasons for making people redundant have to be objective. You have to apply objective, neutral criteria, which don't take into account any protected characteristics. Um, so uh, really someone's ability to work from home or whether they can 
whether they have childcare responsibilities is, is an irrelevant factor for redundancy purposes. And so you really need to be thinking about what your redundancy. So when I talked about having to follow a proper, a, at least at some process in, in redundancy, one of the important things there is thinking about your, your criteria and how you're choosing who gets made redundant and to make sure that you're not doing that on any protected grounds. And I think we appreciate that a lot of people won't have actually had to deal with discrimination in their real life in work or certainly hopefully you won't have had to do that and it is quite complicated so if anyone's got particular issues about weighing up um you know questions that you've received from employees who are uh, working from home or who do have childcare issues then very happy to answer specific questions because it's it's quite difficult to just kind of throw out a bunch of general guidelines on quite complicated legal issues so um do reach out to us um, and that kind of follows into well you know what if you can't have people working from home and what if that means that in fact you don't have work for them? Are there alternatives to making people redundant? So uh, you might have heard some expressions used in the media um, called layoff and short-term working. So these are two different concepts. So um, layoff is, um, it's a technical legal term which has a particular definition, although it gets thrown around a lot. It's being, it's being wrongly thrown around by, by uh, the Chancellor and the Prime Minister when they're talking about the alternative to laying people off in those circumstances they're talking about redundancy and yeah. um, layoff specifically is um where you have a contractual right within your contracts to actually suspend the work that you're providing to an employee and to suspend the, the pay that goes along with that and that is a very particular contractual power now and um, most employers and i imagine most of you probably don't have the right to lay off your employees. You may do, but I would be surprised that many businesses do. Now, I mean, it used to be much more common. Now, we tend to see layoff clauses in large union negotiated uh, businesses and industries uh, and industries where the fluctuation in work is quite significant. So you might see it in construction and hospitality but you're less likely to a lot of other industries if you do have the contractual power then you can use that if you do have the power to lay off then there's maximums around that so you can only lay off an employee even with the contractual power for four or six weeks depending on whether that's consecutive or whether that's intermittent layoff um, and so it may not also be particularly useful at this particular time when we're looking at potentially two to three months worth of this situation ongoing. And there are certain circumstances in which it might be customary and practice for layoff to exist in your industries. And if that is the case, you may have an implied right to layoff, but that's possibly not going to be that easy to establish. So we would certainly say if you're in that territory and you think you might be in an industry where lots of your competitors have got a contractual right to lay off, you may be able to try and say, well, it's very customary in this industry to have this right. I just didn't put it in my own contract. You may be able to use it. Its value, I would say, is limited right now because of the limitations on the four weeks, six weeks. So it's four weeks if it's consecutive or it's six weeks if it's individual weeks. But certainly um, ask us and we'll be very happy to chat that through with you. The short time working is um, very specific. Again, it's when there is less work and there's lower hours and the pay is lower, but it's very particularly less work. So it's a diminution in the work uh, where remuneration drops to less than half a week's pay. So if you're paying someone, for example, at 60% or 70% and they're doing that amount of work, then they won't come under the short time working definition. 
Um, and again, you need the contractual right or you need to establish that it's so customary in your industry that everybody's doing it, that you are entitled. Um, and just on that, if anyone is in that territory, you do accrue holidays and normal contractual benefits during those periods, but you don't actually pay someone. Employees may be entitled to certain payments uh, if they are subjected to that. And I suppose that brings us to the, the government's new guidelines. But before we do that, does anyone have any questions? Well, actually, we should cover off first contractual changing contractual terms. But does anyone have any particular questions on redundancy, layoff and short time working before we move on? Just for me to quickly run through what a fair process does look like on redundancy. So that when I talk about having to still follow a process, just to give you a little bit of a sort of insight into what that involves. So where you're making fewer than 20 people redundant in one particular establishment and that broadly means one location what that means is having some kind of individual consultation so having a proper selection criteria as I talked about already discussing the position with those people having meetings with them putting them at risk of redundancy giving them an opportunity to put their side to explain why they think maybe there are alternatives and thinking about alternatives, also thinking about what suitable alternatives there might be in the wider workforce. And that, that goes beyond just the immediate location, but thinking whether there might be opportunities for them in, in other locations as well before any notice is given. And obviously in a redundancy situation, people would be entitled to their notice period or pay for their notice period. And also if they've got more than two years service, two years service or more, they'll be entitled to a statutory redundancy payment as well as their notice. And a collective situation where you've got 20 or more people being made redundant the obligation is to elect appropriate representatives and carry out that consultation process with those elected representatives and then to do an individual process as well those two can run in parallel to some extent but there are time limits around when that when from the start of the consultation to the time at which the first person sort of walks out the door for redundancy reasons um, there are time limits depending on the numbers of people involved so it's 30 days or 45 days depending on how many people are being made redundant importantly what you don't have to be doing is consulting for that length of time you don't have to be in meetings every day for that length of time you can the consult the consultation can come to an end there are also statutory obligations in relation to notifying the government and fill, filling in what's called a form hr1 when when there are redundancies planned and although it's extremely unusual for anyone to be prosecuted for this, failure to complete it, failure to file an HR1 can be a criminal offence for the directors involved. So that's just something to, if there were 20 or more people being made redundant in your workplace, you need to think quite hard about what your obligations are there. That is an, just to add, that is an important one. I think Marks and Spencers got on, were on the wrong end of that one year during a previous financial crisis. It's direct as well have been they're, they're one of the rare actual prosecutions although it hasn't proceeded properly but yeah there are some yeah um, i think what i'll do now is i'll just talk about the new government scheme um, and then we can kind of pick up on anything anyone else wants to talk about and answer any questions that we've received over the last few minutes so um the government announced on friday some additional support for employees so they announced at the beginning of last week additional support for businesses in the form of business loans um, and a lot of businesses were saying that's not good enough because what I actually need is help to pay salaries and I don't actually need to take on another additional financial liability. So um, we were getting quite frustrated with the time it was taking for the government to actually make announcements about what they were going to put in place for employees and workers but they did eventually come through and they did actually put in place what for employees and workers is quite a good support package 
um, in the circumstances and is actually you know comparable to what a lot of the EU countries have been putting in place. So they've named it the Coronavirus Job Retention Scheme and it applies to all eligible employees. So essentially what they've said, and we are waiting for details, so some of this may be tweaked and some of this is unclear, but um, what they have said is that everyone on PAYE will qualify. So that would apply to employees and workers who are on PAYE. Um, so that would be almost all of the workforce normally. They said it will include, for example, people on zero hours contracts, but what is not clear right now is how that will work because as we mentioned at the beginning, they don't have normal working hours or pay. Essentially what that job retention scheme does is it enables someone who has got an employee but has no work to provide that employee or can't provide them with nearly as much work as normal to essentially suspend that person's work. So stop giving that person work and instead pay them 80% of their usual salary, or it's capped at £2,500. So what, what's been a bit unclear and hasn't been absolutely clarified by the government is the fact that you need to completely stop giving that person work. But that is how we interpret what was said on Friday. So this is not a case of I can drop all my employees to 80% and get the government to pick up the wage bill and they'll still provide me with services. This is I would normally be making this employee redundant. I don't have any work to give them. I'm actually going to stop giving them work. And instead, what I can do is ask them to effectively sit at home. And instead, the government will pay them 80% of their usual pay up to £2,500. So it's really a, a, a massive benefit for people who are potentially going to be looking at making redundancies. If you're in a slightly different category, and in fact, you still need some people to do work for you, but you just don't have enough work to provide them with, say, 100 or 90% of their normal job, then you're in a slightly more difficult position because you need to think about whether or not, in fact, let's say you have 10 people that do the same job. You have two options if you've got less work. You can either put maybe four of them onto this scheme and say, well, I'd otherwise be making four people redundant. So I'll put four people on this scheme. And as Beth says, you would need to choose those people on the grounds of non-discriminatory factors, etc. And we would recommend going through a normal redundancy consultation to select who goes on that scheme so that you're protecting yourself from any potential claims of unfairness. And you could keep six people working full time and earning full time pay. Your alternative is to move everybody on to reduced pay and reduced work. So put everyone on 60% or 70%, for example. And that's ultimately going to be a business decision, depending on what those people individually do, whether anyone particularly has skills that are not replicated in the rest of the group. And also just running the numbers and seeing which of those is going to be better or not. We don't know yet if that 2,500 cap is gross or net equivalent. Um, and looking at similar things with other types of pays that, that come out from the government, it may be that that's a gross figure. Um, it would seem quite odd that the government would give you money to take back the tax, but it may be that that is the case. We, we should hopefully know that today. This scheme is backdated till the 1st of March. It's available for three months, but they have said or longer if necessary. So that would be March, April, May, take us to the end of May. We would also say that, you know, if you are doing this and if you're thinking about implementing this with your employees, it does constitute a change to their terms and conditions. So technically speaking, it doesn't get you around your contractual duty to give that person work and pay them 100% of their pay. So once you've gone through whatever process you're going to go through to select who's going to go onto the scheme, if you're going to 
use it, then what you should be doing is recording that in an agreement between you and the employee so that there is effectively a temporary change to the contractual position. And the same applies if you are not using that government scheme, but instead you're moving everyone to 80% or 70% of pay and hours, which is what most businesses did to try and get through the 2008 to 2013 credit crisis. Then you equally need to be making sure you get the agreement of those employees. Now, it should in practice be quite easy to get the agreement of those employees, because actually, if you're an employee and you're facing either redundancy or at least the risk of redundancy, you probably don't want to take your chances in a redundancy process where you might come out as one of the redundant employees. If, in fact, you could all just agree to work less hours and get paid a little bit less uh, proportionally um, for a period of time and keep your job for the longer term. So I don't think actually getting those employees agreement to reduce pay and hours is going to be too challenging, but don't forget to do it just because you, you think that people are being cooperative with you. But as I say, at the moment, we have no other details as to how the scheme will work, what procedures will need to take place, whether or not, in fact, the government's going to give a reprieve for any contractual terms, conditions, changes. You know, we, we may see, see that they make it very easy for people to implement this, but we just have to wait. It's slightly frustrating because we know that employers right now on a day to day basis are having to make really critical decisions. And for every day that the government don't tell us how this works in practice, people can't make those decisions and some people unfortunately are already having to make hard decisions about redundancies whilst they wait for the government to make a decision about this. Someone's just asked a question which directly relates to this so I will respond to that just now. So someone's asked can you reduce pay by 25% but not reduce their time? So yes in theory you can if the employee is prepared to agree to that. I think probably what you might find is a bit of pushback if someone would be around £2,500 or less uh, monthly pay because then they would be better off doing the 80%, getting paid 80% of their salary and not working under the government scheme. But obviously it's your decision as an employer as to whether you implement that. But the employee's mental process is probably going to be thinking, well, hang on a minute, government have allowed you to give me no work and, have, and pay me 80%. Why would I work for you full time but only get 75% of pay but that will also just depend on what they do and how the relationship is between employer and employee so yes you can do really with things like pay varying pay and varying hours you can do anything within the law as long as you don't drop someone's pay below national minimum wage but it's just whether or not you can get the employee to agree to that and what you need to do is consult with the employee or for any contractual change so that really involves talking to them telling them why you're doing it explaining why you're doing it and then recording that in writing and asking them to sign the chain that the contractual change if ultimately an employee says i'm just not agreeing to that i think it's unreasonable if your proposed change is reasonable and let's say i think something like a 25 percent pay cut with the 25 percent cut in work is reasonable then the employee might um, struggle to do much about that because ultimately what your next point to get to is is to say well if you're not agreeing to this then I will terminate your employment and immediately offer to re-engage you on the new terms and that's probably going to be reasonable in the circumstances I suppose back to the specific question of if you don't reduce their time there is a question as to whether that's reasonable because if they've still got 100% of work to do, why do, does the pay need to go down by 25%? Normally, a reduction of pay is because the business has less work coming through. And I appreciate that there's other things that come into that. But, you know, that would be, I think, what the employee would be thinking about. So 
I just think through that. But obviously, individual employers will be in different circumstances, and it may be that that's a reasonable request in your particular organisation. I'll just deal with a couple of the other questions, a couple of other questions that have come in. Thank you. You've said that the, the government website says to qualify for the scheme, you shouldn't undertake work for the employer while you're furloughed. We will have to get used to this new word, which we never used before, furloughed. Um, I think that's right. The government website says that, but there's quite a lot of commentary around it, um, talking about whether you can top up your the, the additional 20% as a business if you want to, and also questions about if you furlough someone for part the time part of the time and then have them work part-time there's quite a lot of commentary which suggested it's not quite as clear as it as the government seems to indicate in their first announcement and so i think we are wait, we'll just have to wait and see I, I imagine that that is going to be the case that you you are you're either a furloughed or you're not and therefore that but i think that, that there is some commentary around it which makes it slightly less clear than you'd like it to be um there's a fun question uh, whether holiday pay i love holiday pay questions uh, accrued holiday pay during short-term working is accrued on their full-time working hours or their short-time working hours. Um, the position on that is not entirely clear in case law. It has been tested a few times, but essentially what you'd have to show is that for holiday to accrue at the short-time rate, so the reduced hours rate, you'd have to show that these were their new normal working hours. And so I think yeah, the, the position unhelpfully is not entirely clear, as is the case with so many holiday pay issues. Um, but it, yeah, so you have to look at what their actual working hours are during that time. And I think the longer they're on short time working, the easier it will be for you to argue that actually what they should be accruing is holiday on the reduced hours basis. But they're still entitled to accrue holiday as normal under the working time regulations. So it's still the 5.6 weeks per year um, paid at, a, at the normal rate of a week's pay. Uh, there's a question about redundancies and if you've already made redundancies the government have said that this game will be backdated and, the, and that where redundancies have already been made those can be kind of undone and that you provided you put them on as a, essentially sort of furloughed it can be backdated to the 1st of March so I think I think only up to the 29th of February so what they're saying is that from any any redundancies made post 29th of February there will be a mechanism by which you can almost undo those and put them in furlough instead and you should still be able to recover that you might then have to go through a kind of selection process of saying well are we undoing all of those redundancies or are we selecting some people and so you just need to make sure that any process that you're going through there is also fair. So I was just going to pick up on um, someone had asked about the amount of a guarantee payment and a guarantee payment is payable only in a very limited set of circumstances so it's where someone effectively doesn't work on a day that they normally work and um, they may be entitled to a guarantee payment but it's only going to be five days in any three-month period and it's effectively the, the normal working hour is multiplied by the guaranteed hourly rate and so it's probably not something that comes up that often but it is something that the employee is entitled to in certain circumstances i'd be very surprised if it was something that many of you will end up having to deal with and as i say there's that limit of five days in any three-month period for a full-time employee or that's prorated for a part-time employee as well and there is um, a maximum daily rate as well which i was just going to try and find the actual current daily rate and it will change so it's 29 pounds a day is the maximum daily rate so it's a maximum of 145 pounds in any three month period and actually beth i don't know if you know the answer to this but i think it that's that is the employer pays that and i don't think they recover that from the government that's right but it's not i i would have to double check that position yeah i think um it should be something that in fact the payroll software should automatically know but um i am pretty sure that there's no recovery and if you don't pay it, it does a lawful deduction so 
it is something that needs to be paid but as I say it's a very small amount comparatively speaking. There's a question about if you furlough someone and then make them redundant later and specifically if they're furloughed in a probation period and they're, and they're then later made redundant. I think the only thing to think about is that hopefully we'll get some clarification on soon is whether their redundancy pay um, if they're entitled to it, so this doesn't apply to someone who's in their probation period, but if they're entitled to the redundancy pay because they've got two years service, you need to think about what 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 level of pay their redundancy pay is based on, whether it's the 80% or the 100%, um, and I think that position is not clear yet, um, whether their 80% becomes their kind of normal salary for that period. Um, if they're in their probation period, um, they wouldn't be in any event entitled to redundancy payments and I think the, uh, the the risk is really around fair selection and who you don't don't choose someone for for furloughing just because they're in their probation period what other factors there are to consider. We also received a question before um, the webinar started which is quite an interesting one around whether or not if you have employees and you see that on social media they have not been observing the social distancing rules and you therefore take the view that in fact those employees are exposing other people to risk in circumstances where they're still coming into the workplace then can you take any action on those grounds so it's difficult there's no one rule for everyone and and this really falls back on the normal law that we have around unfair dismissal and whether or not something is reasonable or unreasonable but we would be taking into account current circumstances so you know is it reasonable for an employer to expect the employees to observe social distancing rules to start with now i think what we would probably say is if you are worried about this then I think step one is to be making clear what your health and safety expectations are of employees during this period of time. So it doesn't have to be a specific policy, but an email announcement to all staff simply saying that you expect all staff to comply with the government guidelines in relation to social distancing and that you expect all staff coming to work to observe the hand washing guidelines and recommendations from the government. And summarize what those all are and I think once you've done that you have basically set out expected standards of behavior I think on that basis then if you become aware of people not complying with those expected standards of behavior which you have put in place for genuine and important health and safety reasons both for your own workforce and that of everyone's individual families and also just generally society then I think it would be potentially reasonable to discipline someone for not complying with those I think it might be more difficult to do that if in fact you haven't made it clear to the employees that you expect them to comply with these social distancing rules and other health and safety recommendations. And one of the reasons for that is there's still conflicting and confusing things coming out of the government about what that actually means and what social distancing really means. Some people don't realise it means stay two metres apart from someone if you go to the park for a walk. And um, some people think it means stay in your house and never leave. So I think it's much better and you put yourself in a much stronger position as an employer if you yourself simply tell people what you expect to do. Now, I don't know if this applies to any of the people on this, but I think if you were, say, dealing with vulnerable people in your normal work, so let's say someone runs a care home, I think you could be potentially entitled to put more stringent requirements in place as long as you have a reasonable health and safety justification for doing so. Of course, if you find yourself in the situation and you've sent out that email and you've told people what behaviour you expect of them and then you find out that they're not complying with that behaviour, we think that you could probably take steps to discipline that person. 
be mindful of the fact that that is like any other disciplinary situation. You need to go through the normal disciplinary process. You need to give them notification. You need to invite them to a hearing, which obviously can be done uh, virtually in the current circumstances. You would make arrangements in the normal way for them to have a companion who would join that hearing virtually. And then they would get the usual right of appeal. Um, but, you know, I suppose what we would hope is that it, it wouldn't get to that stage and that, you, you know, sending out an email and I would also say if you add on the bottom of your notice or your email any failure to comply with these reasonable health and safety requests may be treated as a disciplinary matter should be sufficient to discourage people from doing it and you may also want to just think about a first stage initial chat with someone to essentially flag up that you know that they're not complying with the guidelines and hope that that's enough without having to go through the process partly just because because from your own perspective the last thing you probably need to be dealing with right now is a completely separate employment law process related to a disciplinary when in fact there's other things really to focus on but yeah i mean it's it won't be absolutely the same for every single employer and every every particular needs to be looked at on its own particular facts and Know whether there's any mitigating factors as to why that employee was out and about etc but in theory yes we think you can discipline someone for that it's worth saying as well that that, that um there are, there's quite a lot of case law about social media and disciplinary and, and um employment rights and whether what people do in their private time but then sort of post on social media might entitle an employer to discipline so and i think i mean it, it's unlikely but there, there is definitely an argument around reputational risk for the employer if people are publicly flouting social distancing rules and they are identifiably working for, for your business while they're doing that adds a sort of extra angle to, to any disciplinary process you might put in place in relation to those people. We've had a couple of questions about employees who joined who, who joined or are joining after the 29th of February. So where they're new employees, can you still, can they, are they still eligible for the furloughing scheme? I don't see any reason why not. There's nothing to suggest at the moment that they wouldn't be. I suppose what the government might say is for people who are taken on by an employer after the furloughing scheme has been announced, after the job retention scheme has been announced, that it might be more reasonable for an employer to withdraw that offer. And I'll come on in a minute to the, the, the issues around withdrawing offers in those circumstances. But that actually the, the government might put in deadlines and say it has to be someone who is engaged by the business before a certain date. But that hasn't, that's not clear yet. There's a question about for employees who've commenced after the 20th of February. I, again, I can't see any reason why they wouldn't be eligible. I mean, the only guidance we have right now is that everyone on PAYE is eligible. That person would be on PAYE, would have been taken on before really the impact of this whole situation was, was known to us and therefore can't see any reason why they wouldn't be eligible for the scheme. That question goes on to say, if not, what would be the best option if there's reduced work or they're unable to work? Well, that goes back to really what you would be looking at in terms of redundancy layoff, short time working or reducing hours. But again, as Beth said, don't just select that person because they're the newest person, go through a proper process and selection criteria to make sure that they are the appropriate right person to be terminated or, or to go or to go on short time working. Some of you may have people on fixed term contracts and you may be thinking about not renewing those fixed term contracts. So again, depending on the purpose of the fixed term contract, if it's fixed term because work fluctuates and you've only wanted to commit for a certain period of time and you've made it clear, well, we'll see how things are, we'll see how much work we've got, then it's perfectly okay not to renew that fixed term contract provided you comply with the relevant notice requirements set out in the contract and you let them know in the 
following the appropriate um, steps. But yes, as a principle, that sort of thing would be okay as well. And in, in terms of employees who have not yet started, who have offers to start and have start dates in the future, a question that we've actually been asked quite a lot is what do we do with those people? Can we just withdraw their offers and, and not take them on? I mean, it, it's obviously a slightly difficult situation because that, those people will likely have given notice to their current employers if that's relevant. So that, you know, not taking them on will obviously put them in a, in a very difficult situation. In terms of what they could then do about that, I think there are potential legal recourse in those circumstances is relatively limited because what, what they would need to do is bring a claim for breach of contract, essentially. So they would say, you breached my contract. And I think they were and, and, and not commencing on the date that it was supposed to commence. But what their losses are there, so what they would be having to sort of sue for in, in basic terms is what their notice period would be when they started so the you know an alternative scenario is they come in on day one you give them notice immediately and if they are for example in a probationary period they might have a one week's notice or they might have uh, you know one month's notice or so so the the losses that they might be able to recover in those circumstances are pretty limited depending on the length of their contractual notice period there is also an argument to sort of slightly techie legal argument about if they haven't commenced their employment yet, whether they're entitled to notice at all, and therefore whether they have in fact suffered any loss by not commencing work. But I think there are certainly circumstances in which you can withdraw offers. And I think the risks in terms of potential claims are relatively limited, although you do obviously need to think about exactly what your contract says and how it's framed. Are there any other issues that anyone would like us to spend the last five minutes just going over again or focusing on in more detail or picking up a particular point? that's come up. So there's one thing just to really think about is that any changes you're making to contracts, any changes, any redundancies, if you particularly if you don't have a contractual right to do various things like changing hours, laying off, um, short time working, it's really important to have individual consultation with the employees to make sure that you are getting buy-in from them and agreement to that contractual change. Failure to do that can result in breach of contract claims, and so not getting that step right is, can, can be pretty risky and expensive for business. So I don't have any other questions. Is it worth us just quickly, one of the things we were going to cover and haven't covered is just, if you do still have people in the workplace, steps you ought to be taking to protect them. And I'm sure most of you are on top of this already in terms of distance between workstations, allowing people not to sit directly together and providing washing facilities, providing antibacterial hand sanitizer if necessary, but, but making sure that what you're providing is a safe workplace. I think as well, just to add to that, what we would be recommending is flexibility around time of attending work and time of leaving work. I suppose this goes to two points. One is a health and safety issue around travelling on public transport, which may or may not be more of an issue in certain cities. And in London, for example, there's been a really strong message from TfL to say that no one should be on public transport unless they are a key worker. So, you know, think carefully about whether you can provide your staff with other ways of getting to work. If you have the ability to provide car parking, etc., or storage for bikes or anything like that. And the other one is around being practical about people's ability to do things like get to a supermarket or to help an elderly relative or whatever caring responsibilities they might have. So just be mindful of that. I mean, there's no specific law around what you can and can't do. But I think we would just say right now, some flexibility will probably make the need to implement any measures later down the line easier for you if the 
employees can see that you as an employer have tried so far as possible to make this work and to help them make it work in their own personal duties and responsibilities that they might have. So we would just, I think, encourage from an employee relations perspective, having good employee relations can be really vital when in fact what you're going to be asking people to do is take less money, but still work and be supportive to the business and do things that they don't normally maybe do. So work at home or meet everyone on video call or, or whatever. So I think it's just from an employee relations perspective, important to try and be as flexible. It won't apply to everyone. You know, some people just don't have that flexibility. But if you do have that flexibility, then I think it's a sensible time to deploy that. Sarah, I've got two quick questions, if I may. One is we're starting to see requests from people who got, you know, two uh, uh, child carers at home and they they both want to work remotely and work a full day as far as possible. So they're trying, we're getting people saying, actually, can I work from... 6am till 2pm and my partner wants to work from 2pm till 9 or 10pm can I do that my other question as well which I think is quite relevant is the extent to which we should all be reminding our employees that behaviorally all of our normal policies and procedures apply in terms of it just because we're working from home you know the usual rules about not bullying not harassing we're all using email and messaging a lot more. So just some basic protections about making sure that they are adhering to the sort of the, the, the usual policies on behavior towards each other and as representatives of the business. Yeah, I, just picking up on that one first. I mean, it, it could be the sort of thing that you want to pick up on if you are putting out any sort of announcement or request for people to do things in a certain way or not. I mean, one other thing that we get asked about quite a lot prior to all of this starting was around harassment and moving on from sexual harassment. I was getting a lot of queries from clients about emails and people using capital letters and exclamation marks in emails. And I know it sounds really kind of basic, but it's starting to become much more of an issue. And I think it is something that, um, and you know, for fear of, of being age discriminatory and what I'm about to say, I would say that different generations respond to things differently. And what we have seen are quite a lot of complaints around people being bullied because someone shouted at them in an email because they put something in capital letters or people taking emails, um, abrupt emails in a really negative way. And then obviously if someone is isolated at home, that might ruminate more in their minds and make them more anxious. Um, so I think it's really important to be thinking about that, particularly in this situation, because normally if someone sends a difficult or abrupt email, they then come into contact with that person the next day and, and any potential anxiety around that goes away when the human to human relationship is back on track and normal. And so one, that's one aspect of um, sort of uh, remote communication. The other one is again, something that we were being consulted on before all this started, which was around the timing of sending emails. And obviously when you are working at home and you are a business owner, you don't have much division, um, rightly or wrongly, between work and, and life. But I think for employees, it's still important to make sure that they have some sort of division between workplace and life. Um, and so I think, you know, it might seem really natural if your day is just continuing even more so right now because there's nothing to go out and do in the evening um, to be sending emails at 10 o'clock, 11 o'clock at night. But 
personally I, I find this quite difficult as well because I will deal with stuff later on at night you know I'll eat and then kind of come back to things so I do appreciate that it is quite a natural thing to do when you're busy running a business but I do think we just need to maybe stop and think a little bit more at this particular moment how people will feel and also be mindful that those people now have their full work set up at home and maybe checking things more than they might otherwise be and, and could be stressed by things so that's just sort of just a point to think about to the first question people asking for flexible hours oh yes so i think we talked about yeah so i think um i think there are a few options you could um you could ask them to make a formal flexible working request under the statutory procedure which would constitute but then ordinarily constitute a permanent change to their terms and conditions i think it may just be better to say yes, you know, to, if it is feasible um, to, to be flexible, provided that they are also able to be flexible. To, so to say, you know, we, we can accommodate this and we'll do it on a trial basis. We'll see how it goes. If it's not working, you know, we need to keep these lines of communication open. So if that is feasible, I mean, if someone wants to work at seven o'clock and there's no work to do at seven o'clock, then that, you know, then that's not, um, that's, that's not a workable solution. But if it is something that you think might be able to work we are in unprecedented extraordinary times and if you have you know believe that that person will get their work done whether they do it at seven o'clock in the morning or at ten o'clock at night um and and that you know the business needs will be served then then i would recommend some flexibility around that if it's possible in some circumstances yeah does anyone have any just some last minute questions before we all i was going to add just to beth's point was just that to, to you can do that on a trial period of two weeks or four oh. weeks just make it clear how long you're trialing it for and that it will be reviewed and review it and have a conversation at the time so we've got one question what if the employer can't afford the redundancy payments so if the employer can't afford the redundancy payments that's generally because the employer will then be in a potential insolvency situation and if there's no funds to pay the redundancy payments and the employer is insolvent then uh, the administrator would be appointed to the business and would probably um, look to see if there's any funds that can be recovered to make those payments otherwise employees can claim redundancy payments and also notice periods and accrued holiday that they're entitled to under a statutory national guarantee scheme so um, the employees will get those payments from the government um, but in terms of whether or not you can or can't afford them um, you need to think about um, whether that's a, you know an actual inability to pay them or whether that's because you're thinking about other liabilities because they are a liability that you have to pay so I'd be speaking to an accountant about whether or not there's any flexibility around that. And can you get an employee's agreement to delay a redundancy payment? I think this would only be possible if you got them to agree it in the context of a statutory settlement agreement. So a statutory settlement agreement is effectively something that um, you implement between employer and employee. It requires certain things to be included in the agreement, which are governed by the, the statute and the law. And it requires the employee to take legal advice, which you normally have to pay for, normally a minimum of £300. Um, and that is probably the only way to vary the terms in which you make a redundancy payment. And if the employee was to agree to all of that, then they would be able to agree to defer that payment because effectively what they will do in that agreement is waive their rights to sue you for a redundancy payment. So in that context, that's how you get the deferral. I would say that the costs of dealing with a settlement agreement and getting employee legal advice might um, outweigh. Um, 
whether or not on a practical basis, you may want to try and just agree with the employee and know that there's a there's probably at the moment a relatively small risk that they would take issue with that. They may just be happy to wait for that payment. You, you might be slightly exposed legally, but it, you know, in the circumstances, the real risk might be quite minimal. And so that is the other option. Fantastic. Thank you so much. It, Beth, Sarah, is there any sort of quick final wrap up you want to do? Or I, th- I think we've um, covered all the questions. Yeah. All I'd say is that we're obviously hoping to get some more information on the scheme later and that that may allow a lot more kind of flexibility for employers and that we're happy to set up another webinar like this later in the week to discuss that once we have more details. Okay, fabulous. Well, look, thank you very much. I mean, I I have to say I've learned stuff as well, so it's brilliant. And thank you everyone for joining. If you do think it would be helpful to have a, a follow up, then we'd be really pleased to do this. It's nice to be able to do something helpful and constructive for our you know friends when actually we're all dealing with his stuff together thank you so much and and thanks again sarah and beth